0: From Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Good morning, church. How we doing? All right. I'm telling you, man, it is weird not having a guitar on. But <laughs> what are you going to do? All right. So, so uh, let me let me start off by saying. Church, it is always an honor to lead you all in worship Sunday to Sunday. As we get to declare the truths of the gospel in song, what a privilege it is of mine that that we have a God... Oh, we have it is a privilege to point you guys to a God who has sought us out to give us this great gift of salvation. And I say it often in our Tuesday mornings when I get to stand on this stage and just play right when they should just I draw I, I pull out of the mic. I'm just playing the guitar and let you guys the congregation sing to our Heavenly Father. That is a golden moment here on the earth. Right? Just being up here and feeling that, that wave from the saints singing to their savior. What an awesome thing that God allows me to be part of. Right? So that said, I rarely get the points. I, I, I rarely get to simply just sit in the congregation and just worship. And this morning's worship was so good, was it not? Oh, we are so blessed to have a worship team that serves us relentlessly. Right? These guys, They come in long before any of us are here to set up, they prepare the music to take care of anything else for the day. And let me say this, they don't complain, right? They put up with me and they don't complain, (laughs) right? And they simply love serving their church, right? So would you guys join me in just giving a round of hands to the worship team, right? Worship team, you guys are a gift, right? So today, obviously, I'm in a different role. You know, it's it's rather special when I get asked to preach from God's word, especially when we have so many great speakers that fill this church. This church has been blessed with men and women that adore God's word. Right. So let me say from the bottom of my heart, this this is a great honor and it's a privilege to be with you all this morning as I stand behind this pulpit and not a music stand. So thank you, church. So on that note, let's dig in now. Now, I grew up in the church, right? My mom would take me and my sister to church, or children's church, as they would call it, in little Prince Frederick, Maryland. Now, I went simply because it's what you do, right? It's what all my friends did, so it's what we did, too. And I wouldn't even say that I was a Christian then. Right, God used that, don't get me wrong, but that probably came later when I was 1920. Right, and it probably has a lot to do with God putting this beautiful blonde woman in my life that I now get to call my wife, right? Just being honest. But all that to say is I came from this church that preached, you're a sinner, you need to be saved, and to get saved, you need to claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior, right? Nothing new there. But sometimes I look back and I wonder why I wasn't a Christian sooner. I wonder if it had anything to do with how they preached that narrative, the narrative of the gospel. Yes, I know God has been at work in my life from the very beginning. He's sovereign. But I wonder about how they preached the gospel. More specifically, I come from a church that said, because Jesus died on the cross, we no longer need the Old Testament. Right? We no longer need the Ten Commandments. We no longer need anything of the old because we have the New Testament. We have Jesus. Well, that's interesting. If I'm a sinner and I need to be saved, then what do I need to be saved from? Right. Daniel Ritchie always tells the story of how he came to faith. He says that he had these kids come up to him and telling him that he needed to be saved. And his response was, "Okay, saved from what? Right. Without the Old Testament, you don't have the full picture. You have part of it, but you don't have the whole thing. So I grew up in this church and said, you can just throw away the Old Testament. Just read the new. So as a kid, you're going to tell me that I don't have to read the Old Testament? I'm like, yep, sounds good. Right? Let's be honest. Even as adults, sometimes the Old Testament, it can be daunting. Right? There's some of us at the beginning of the year, we sit down with our Bible reading plan. We go through Genesis, say we make it through Exodus, and then what happens? We hit Leviticus and all hope is lost, Right? <laughs> And don't get me wrong, I've been there, but we need the full picture, right? We need the Old Testament and everything in it. Charles Spurgeon said this about the use of the Old Testament to the modern reader. I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. The law is the needle, and you cannot draw the silken thread of the gospel through a man's heart unless you first send the needle of the law to make way for it, right? Right? See how important it is for us to get this right as a kid. And even into my early twenties, I felt this tension of law versus gospel and there's nothing new about it. This tension of law versus gospel or even law versus grace. And it's something that's perplexed the church for millennia. Do we need the old Testament, right? Are we saved by law or by grace? Right. There's nothing new about these tensions. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul faced critics about that very thing, the tension between law versus gospel. And you might even feel them today. However, the verse that comes to my mind is Matthew 517. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Right. And that's going to be a big portion of what we're going to tackle today. We're going to discuss this tension between the Old Testament and the New Testament, this tension about law and gospel. Okay, so. Let's remember where we left off first. Okay, last week, we had the Apostle Paul describing in his letter how we are slaves to righteousness there. He was basically describing how we're emancipated from one master sin. But now we serve another Christ. And he was saying that there's no middle ground of personal independence. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. So this whole drum that he's been beating the entire time has been one that says in Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, you are freed from sin. And this is where you get the pretty famous verse out of Romans, Romans 6:22 through 23. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. That's just a big boy word for making something holy. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And here it is. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Right. So we are slaves to righteousness. And because of that, as Pastor Dave pointed out last week, we have a true Freedom. Right. The more we conform to the image of Christ, the more freedom we actually achieve. And then Pastor Dave left us with this zinger of a phrase that said something like the freest being in the entire universe is Jesus. Right. We're slaves to righteousness, which grants us true freedom. So today we're going to look at what we're supposed to do with that freedom. All right. So today we're going to be reading from Romans seven, one through six. Now, what Paul does, he opens up these chapters and describes the meaning of the work of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. And the meaning is that he came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, namely endure a punishment in our place and provide a perfect righteousness in our place. In other words, for us to be made right and have a right standing with God, our sin must be perfectly punished, and God's law must be perfectly obeyed. So getting right with God has nothing to do with our performance. It has nothing to do with how well we care for one another. It has nothing to do with how many mission trips you go on or even how much you tithe. Our performance is completely irrelevant. Instead, it is based on a work totally outside of ourselves, performed by another, performed by Jesus Christ. Right? So we're going to look at three points today to keep things simple. First, Paul says something about how we are released from the law. Then we're going to look at uh, what, it's, what he means and, and define what that means. Okay, second, we're going to look at the illustration that he gives us. And then we're going to look at why God has released us from this law. So your mission, so you choose to accept, is this. This is the big idea. Just as death dissolves legal obligation to one spouse in a marriage, the law is dissolved when the Christian dies with Christ. Because we have a new union with Christ, the Holy Spirit gives us a new status, a new power, and a new security so that we can serve God's kingdom. So on that note, church, stand with me in honor of God's word as we dive into our text for today, which is Romans 7, 1 through 6. Ah. And church, we love God's word. We are incredibly grateful for God's word. Romans seven, one through six. Or do you not know brothers for I am speaking to those who know the law that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives for a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. For while we were living in the fresh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Church, pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together today. What a gift it is that we have. The church, not just this building, but that you have joined brothers and sisters united under the banner of Christ. We are truly thankful for that. We thank you for your word. Your word gives us the truths that we so desperately need. Lord, we know this world needs your truth. So, Lord, also give us the wisdom to be able to read your truth, to apply this to our everyday lives, Lord. And of course, let us honor your name in our meeting. And of always, let us glorify you and enjoy you forever. Amen. All right, church, you can be seated. So let's dive into that first point of the day, the law. Okay. Again, let's remind ourselves of the big idea now that we've read the text. Just as death dissolves legal obligation to one's spouse in a marriage, the law is dissolved when the Christian dies with Christ. Because we have a new union with Christ, the Holy Spirit gives us a new status and a new power and a new security so that we can serve God's kingdom. Okay, so jump into Romans chapter seven, verse one. So here we have Pastor Paul. He begins to confirm a few things about the law. He boldly goes out and declares the gospel, but he also starts to defend the unity of scripture, right? He defends that tension of law versus gospel. In Romans, you have in places where Paul goes out of his way to show the priority of Israel, or I should say the church. He shows God's plan, the privileges that the church enjoys, and the promises that we have all received. But he also shows something to his critics, and it's something we can't forget, right? that none of his preaching is inconsistent with the message of the Old Testament. Right. It's the same message. It's the same message that says the coming of Christ is the only way that all of our hopes and what we long for are fulfilled. So there you have it. That's what Paul has been setting up. Now we finally get to verse one. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Look at that again. For I am speaking to, know, to those who know the law. If you've been around the church for any time at all, you've probably heard that phrase, the law, right? In the New Testament, that phrase, the law, it's actually used in several different ways. Sometimes it refers to the entire Old Testament. Sometimes it just refers to the first five books of the Bible, other, otherwise known as Torah, which is then translated into English, which is the law, right? And if that wasn't confusing enough, sometimes it refused to the Mosaic Covenant and the Ten Commandments. Bottom line, we say that phrase all the time, law, la, 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 law, like it's a bad Christmas song, fa, la, 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 right? Sorry, that's what you get with me up here. I just, you know. So we need to be clear about what Paul means about the law right now. And I don't want you to get overwhelmed by all these churchy words. Right. Stay with me. We'll, and we're going to keep it simple for our purposes today. And what I believe is a safe way of defining what Paul is referring to here in verse one is a principle. All right. Take it as a principle. When Paul says law, he's describing a principle that says keeping the commandments given to us by God is the path for us to be made right with God. As in Paul is is clarifying this principle that says the commandments given by God was never intended to make one righteous and cleansed of their human sinfulness. So in, it, it, to me, it seems like embedded in the Old Testament, there is an ultimate principle that says if you seek to be made right with God by commandment keeping, you must be perfect in keeping all of them. Right. Or fall back on the provision of some kind of animal sacrifice. And how exhausting can that be? Right. You get up, lied, animal sacrifice. You get up wanting something that your neighbor had, animal sacrifice. Basically, you get up, breathed animal sacrifice. For example, Galatians 3.10 says it 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 is written, cursed it be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Then you have James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it, right? If you want to be justified, that is to come in a right standing with God through law keeping, rule keeping, commandment keeping, then you have to keep it all. And guess what? Nobody can do that. It's impossible without the righteousness of Christ being given to you. So that's where this principle of the law collides with gospel. And it's a good tension, right? It's proposed to be a tension for a purpose, Right. Or we could say law versus gospel law versus grace. This gospel says, okay, you can't do it. Christ has done it for you. Christ has borne your punishment for not doing Christ is provided your perfection, which you can't measure up to. And so we have the gospel and the gospel is completely different from the principle of the law. That's the demand for perfect commandment keeping to get right with God. So instead we have the gospel. And we should all say yes and amen to that. If this perfect commandment-keeping thing goes south, or I should say when it goes south, what are we to do? Well, the gospel declares, yeah, you know that perfect commandment-keeping thing? Yeah, Christ has done that, right? He has finished that. He has provided that. And now the way into a right standing with God is by faith in the Redeemer, faith in the substitute. Plainly said, faith in Christ. So if you're sitting there and you're asking yourself, so if this law is impossible for us to keep, then why did God even give it to us in the first place? Right? You may be even saying, yeah, I've heard all this before. You may be saying, I guess God made his test too hard for mankind. So, so now you're saying he had to make it a little bit easier. I guess God had to grade on a curve. Well, let's take on that question. How has God used the law in our lives and the lives of others in this world? Now, most will see God's commandments or the law in three different ways. First, God uses it as a curb for the good of his creation. God uses the law to limit or prevent outbursts of sin, thereby helping to keep the order in the world. It attempts as a way to restrict a man's sin. Right. You can maybe even say it hopes to give some kind of morals to abide by. Right. We all know how this world can be, how crazy this world can get. Right. And it seems like it's regressing more and more by the day. So trying to restrict that behavior is needed. So here's an idea. The law is for the lawless. Those who do not have Christ in their hearts. First, Timothy one, nine through ten. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Church, does that sound like our world? Second way God uses the law, and this this is the big one. God uses it as a mirror. He uses the law to reveal and condemn our sin. If you're someone who thinks that they're a good person, my question to you is then, how do you know? Right? By what standard are you referring to? Right? As human beings after the fall, we are full of sin. And don't think so? Have you ever yelled at someone in anger, right? Some of us failed that one just trying to make it here on time, right? So have you ever lied, right? Have you ever lusted over someone? Have you ever lusted over a brand new car or a pair of shoes or even a job? So the point is, we are sinful creatures. And would we honestly know that if we didn't have the law? Not one bit. We are really, really, really good at justifying ourselves. We need a mirror. Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin and Romans seven, seven, this is where we'll be next Sunday. What then shall we say that the law is sin by no means? Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The law shows that we all have sin and cannot keep God's commandments. So it makes known our need for the gospel of Christ, who is said to be the fulfillment of the law. Christ is the one who has perfectly kept God's commandments. The law always accuses in a conversation about this with my father-in-law. He said it the best way I've ever heard it described. He said the law is diagnostic. How do you know if something's broken? Right. You need a diagnostic when something is going on in your body. When you feel something is off, what do you do? You go to the doctors to get a diagnosis, right? With a diagnosis, you then know what steps you can get, take to get healed. It's an x-ray. It shows us what we can't see ourselves. Look at your world today. Look at your world today and just see how many, me, how many people can feel or are flat out crying out that something is broken. They try to heal by turning to things that will never solve the problem. They turn to drugs and alcohol. They try to heal by focusing on their career. They try to heal by stealing, taking what they think that should be theirs, right? They know something is broken, but they haven't received a diagnosis. The law does just that. It's diagnostic. Augustine says this, the law bids us as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it to know how to ask the help of grace, See, now we're back to that law gospel tension. The law teaches what we are to do and not to do. The gospel teaches what God has done and still does in Jesus for our salvation. The law shows us our sin and the wrath of God. The gospel shows us our savior and being, brings God's grace and favor to it. To make it simple, the law tells us what to do. The gospel tells us what God has done. Right. So the law is diagnostic, but the gospel is curative. So if you've ever been sick to the point that you didn't know what was going on, you didn't know what was wrong, you needed to get some help. Something is going on with my body. I'm in pain. I'm hurting. I can't fix this on my own. If you've ever been there, then you know how much of a relief it can be to at least have a doctor tell you that he knows how to fix it. Right. The law is diagnostic, but the gospel is curative. The gospel says that when you feel broken, when you have nowhere to turn to, there is someone who has gone before you to ensure that you are healed. That's what the gospel does. Kids, when your brother or sister steals from you, so you think about stealing something of theirs, you have the gospel. Teens, when you when when someone treats you like garbage or with violence and you contemplate how to destroy that person seven different, which ways you have the gospel. Right. Moms. When you're losing your mind because your baby didn't go to bed till two and woke back up at three and now it's five and you have to be at work in an hour, you have the gospel. Dads, when you're away from that trip, when you're on that business trip and no one is around besides you and your computer screen, you have the gospel. When you think that you have nothing left, when you think you are at the end of the rope, when you say, I have nothing else to give, When you finally say, I can't do this thing alone, remember, that is precisely where God wants you to be. Remember that you have the gospel. The law is diagnostic, but the gospel is curative. Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish uh, Danish theologian, philosopher, poet, many other things, says this. To be in need of God is no shameful embarrassment, but precisely the perfection of human life. And that it would be the saddest of all tragedies if a man passed through life without discovering that he needed God. Let us then strive to interpret to ourselves this edifying thought, namely that man's need of God constitutes his highest perfection. (laughs) So good. The law tells us what to do. The gospel tells us what is done. The law is diagnostic, but the gospel is curative. Right. Some people wonder why we call him the great physician. Third way, God uses the law. God uses the law to guide us. He uses it as a guide to direct our thoughts, our words, our deeds as Christians, right? In God-pleasing ways. He uses it as a guide. You're probably familiar with Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I may not be able to perfectly keep all the commandments of God and what a glorious gift we have in Christ that he has done that for us. But knowing that, knowing that he is my redeemer, I want to look more and more and more like him every single day, every single day. So give me a guide that directs me on how to emulate him the best I can. Okay, more on that later. That's the third use. So to recap before moving on, Paul says, Romans 7, 1, or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law? What does Paul mean by the law? The law is a principle that says keeping the commandments given to us by God is the path for us to be made right with God. What is the law used for three things to act as a curb or to limit sin, to be a mirror or to show how we can't keep the commandments on our own and to be our guide to show us how to emulate Christ. Okay, so there you go. Now we dive into our second points of the day, the illustration. Let's look at that last part that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. This brings us to our second point of the day and it's a fairly straightforward one. He says he's talking to those who know the law. He says that we wouldn't we we shouldn't throw away the law. He says that the law has a purpose and it always has and it still does today. But he comes in with this mic drop and says that the law is binding only on a person only as long as he lives. Well, how is that possible? We just got done with saying how wonderful the law is, and now Paul is saying that we are no longer bound to it. Again, can you feel that gospel tension, that law tension, right? So Paul is saying that we are no longer bound to the law. Now we look to verses 2 through 4 for some help. Romans 7, 2 through 4. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. this is not a verse focused on marriage, right? This is not the context that he's using this. This isn't a rule or a guide to show how women were joined in union to their husbands. You can use it as a cross reference for that. Sure. But this rare, this has nothing to do with how a woman leaves and weds again to another man, not with Paul's mission here, but this has everything to do with how we are joined together with Christ. Okay. Okay. Every one of us are familiar with the picture of marriage. Even though our world wants to destroy that one, we know what it's supposed to look like, right? You meet someone, you get married, you're joined to that person. Ideally, you stay married to that person until death, right? And we've all heard the phrasing in a wedding vow. It usually goes something like this. I, state your name, take this person to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, and say it with me, till... Death do us part. There you go, right? That's what's going on here. Romans 7, 2 through 3, it's illustrating the standard set down in verse 1, right? And it's this, that death decisively changes a person's relationship to the law. So let's make it clear. Look at that middle part there with me. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Some translations say you have died to the law through his slain body. So Paul points to, to something a little more expressive in showing how we have died to the law. He says that we were slain. What does this do? And it, it makes it clear what he's meaning. It's the same thing as being crucified with Christ. It's just as what he was doing in Romans 6, 5 through 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified, with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So the whole point is to illustrate the general principle that says death dissolves legal obligation. Right? It was essential to the argument that we, not the law, should be the dying party since it is we that are crucified with Christ, not the law. This death dissolves our marriage obligation to the law. And this allows us liberty to be united in a new relation, to be joined to Christ, right? See that marriage language going on here? So is this an illustration of how a marriage can be dissolved without more shame and guilt put on that person who wants to be remarried? Not even close. Instead, it is an illustration of how we are joined to Christ, right? It's an illustration of how we have a union with another, Just as a person is no longer bound legally to their spouse after one passes away while married, the law is not binding on the Christian because the Christian dies with Christ. Notice how Paul has been on this thought train, and he's been on it for a while. How are we joined to Christ? Through his death and resurrection. Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Romans 6, 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Again, Paul's showing that unity of scripture. He's continuing to say that in Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, you are freed from sin. So do we abide by the law or the gospel? The answer is Yes. Do we throw away the law? No. We love the law. Christians should love the law. It shows something that we could never do on our own. It shows us something that we would have never seen before. But instead, it points to someone who abided by it perfectly, who was then slain unjustly, all to ensure that we could be made right with God and be brought back into a harmonious relationship with him. The law points to the one that we can have a union with if we die to ourselves. Christians, we should love the law. John Piper says this. The law is not the goal of history. Christ is the goal of history. The law is not the goal of your life. Christ is the goal of your life. Christ did not come into history to lead us to the law. The law came into history to lead us to Christ. The law is not the goal of Christ. Christ is the goal of the law. And marriage is not for the sake of wedding vows. Wedding vows are for the sake of marriage. Just as a person is no longer bound legally to their spouse after one passes away while being married. The law is no longer binding on the Christian because the Christian dies with Christ. Therefore, new desires and new attitudes and new choices and new actions, they grow like a fruit from this all-satisfying relationship between us and Christ. That takes us to our final point for the day. Now we point to number three, the purpose. So if you're still tracking with me, what we've seen is how Paul has said, we're no longer bound to the law. Great. Now what? What's the purpose? Well, Pastor Paul doesn't leave us hanging here either. He gives us verses five and six to show that because we have a new union with Christ, the Holy Spirit gives us a new status, a new power and a new security so that we serve God's kingdom. Romans seven, five through six. For while we were living in the fresh flesh, Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. So let's look at that first part. Verse five. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Here you have Paul stating that while you were living in the flesh, Meaning while you were an unbeliever, your sinful passions were aroused by the law. Now that might seem a bit weird to us, right? Paul isn't talking about this Christian who continues to struggle with sin, but he's making the contrast between an unbeliever and a Christian, right? It's a contrast between what we were before our conversions, before we declared Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and what we are now. We once were living in the flesh, but now we live in the righteousness of Christ, We used to be something that God did not see uh, as being worthy enough to be in heaven. But now, but now, church, he calls us his children. Right. We are something new completely altogether. So Paul continues in saying that our sinful passions were aroused by the law. You know what he's saying there? You know, when you were a kid and someone said for you not to touch something and you weren't even thinking about touching it in the first place, but because you were told not to do it now, you can't help but think about doing that very thing. Right. Don't touch that. It's hot. Well, how hot? All right? How close can I get to it? Right. Most cases, that's exactly what we do. That's what our sin does when it comes to the law. Paul is pointing out that these passions or these impulses we get, they've all been corrupted by our sinful nature. When the law tells us that we should not do something, our sinful nature, it just it rebels and it entices us to do the evil instead. Right. The law is good. But church, let's be clear. Let's be honest. We are not. That's what Paul is pointing us to. We once had sinful passions because we were in the flesh. Before our conversion, the law served as a way to arouse our sinful passions. It pushed us to sin. It's the only way, it's only after that Christ comes in on our lives and changes us. Now we find ourselves being drawn in the way of the righteousness by God's spirit. Here's the final point in today's message. It's about change and what that change makes us do. This is the change that Paul's been talking about the entire time. He's been pointing to the difference in a person's life. We once were apart from Christ, but now we are believers. Once again, Paul's been on the same thought train. He started in chapter 5 to show in Christ the contrast between being in Adam versus being in Christ. In chapter 6 then, he showed us the contrast between us in the original slavery to sin versus being slaves to God. And now here we are in chapter 7, he shows two marriages. He's shown our marriage to the law and how we have died to it. And because of that, we are now joined to Jesus. And it's all the same idea. To be a Christian is to be a brand new creation in Christ. Right? That's the key to the whole thing. The result of the dissolution of our marriage to the law is that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. And this is good news, church. Instead of despair, there's joy. Instead of bondage, there is freedom. Instead of death, there's life. We no longer have to belong to the law. Now we belong to Christ, and this should make us worship. Verse 6 says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Read it again. But now we are released from the law. Why? So that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Why are we released from the law? So that we serve in a brand new way. We've been told we're no longer in Adam, but in Christ. We've been told that we're no longer a slave to sin, but to righteousness. We are a brand new creation. Why so that we can serve the great God of the entire universe who has accomplished everything in order for you and I to have this great and wonderful gift of salvation made possible only by the works of Christ on the cross and which we now have a union with. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful thing to respond to. Why are we released from the law so that we can serve the God we love. Man was never created to be autonomous, that is, free to be a law to himself. Instead, we were created to be theonomous, that is, bound to keep the law of our maker. And this isn't even something we dread. This isn't something we do out of duty or obligation. This is what we do out of our hearts being consumed with thankfulness to God for sending someone who could do what none of us could. Right. We serve out of response for what's been done on our behalf. When the new creation serves God, it brings them the highest happiness because they are so eternally grateful for the gift of salvation. Right. We covered it earlier. Do we throw away the law? Not at all. The law shows how we can serve God. The law shows us how to emulate Jesus. The law shows us what is pleasing to God. And now that we've been given the new way of the spirit, we want to do everything possible to serve God in ways that will bring joy and honor to his name. The fallen human heart dislikes God's law, both because it's a law and because it's God's. Those who know Christ, however, Find not only that they love the law and want to keep it out of gratitude for grace, but also that the Holy Spirit leads them into a degree of obedience, starting with the heart that was never even there before. Right now, as believers, we want to obey God. And don't get it twisted. We're not attempting to earn our salvation. It's not like we're released from the law. Now we have the spirit of Christ. and Now we're able to obey the law. That's not even the point here. We want to obey because we have been changed. We still want to serve in a way that reflects the righteousness of the law, but have now been given new power to do this. The Holy Spirit. There's the difference. We now have a new status and a new power and a new security so that we can serve God's kingdom. This is why we serve. J.I. Packer says it like this. The moral teachings of Christ and his apostles is the old law deepened and reapplied to new circumstance life in the kingdom of God, where the savior reigns and where God's people are called to live heaven's life among themselves and to be God's counterculture in the world. Church, we remember and we take note of what God has done for us and it causes us to rejoice and to serve We know that we don't have to be controlled by our sin. We know that we can conquer our temptations. We know that we don't need to listen to the whispers from the enemy, all the the lies and the deceit that feeds us. We now look to the blessings, the countless blessings that we have, who has given them to us and whose blood has achieved it. We have that at the forefront of our hearts and our minds and our souls. This very notion, every single blessing that we have is bought by the blood of Christ. You are completely new. Having put your faith in Christ, you are now a new creation. And so the old has passed away, and now the new affects you in every single area of your life. You have a brand new heart. You have a brand new desires. The things you used to yearn for are now things that just make you cringe, right? What you used to take pleasure in, now it makes you sick to your stomach. Why? Because you have been given the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5:16 through 18, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. We are released from the law so that we serve the new way of the spirit. And here's a crazy thought. That same spirit that resides in Jesus Christ now resides in those who have faith in him. Wow. If that doesn't make you serve your heavenly father, I don't know what was. That should make us rejoice. That should make us worship. We have been given the same spirit as Christ, and we now have his spirit. And that spirit makes us want to serve him. That spirit makes us want to serve the church. And I'm not even talking about just CLF, but the church, his people, the body of Christ. He makes us want to be builder, kingdom builders. And we want to build the kingdom in any way that we know how. Because it brings on a whole new way of life. Second Corinthians three through six: the for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now let me be perfectly clear, and I've, I've got the I got to pump the brakes here a little bit. If you haven't given yourself to declaring Jesus as your Lord and Savior, guess what? You are still very much under the law. You're still a slave to sin. What awaits you isn't a place in heaven, a place free from death, free from mourning, free from crying, free from pain. What awaits is death, eternal strife, more pain. So those who have not placed their hope in Jesus, I have to plead with you. Give yourself to Christ. Die to the law. Be given a brand new spirit for the sake of Christ and for the sake of your own soul. Give yourself utterly to knowing Christ and trusting Christ and to loving Christ and you'll be changed. You will then be able to bear fruit for God, not in the oldness of the letter, but in the newness of the spirit. Listen, while while you're still bound by the law, you're never going to find contentment. You're never going to find happiness, whatever that means to you. You're never going to find freedom. You're going to fail and you're going to fail and you're going to fail and you're going to fail. And you're gonna fail you're then going to get frustrated. You're going to feel completely defeated. You're going to grow weary and then you're going to fail and you're going to fail and you're going to fail and you're going to fail unless you place your hope in Christ. There is nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. Only what God has done for you. And let me say this, you don't have to be perfect to go to heaven. Doesn't God demand perfection? He absolutely does. Jesus is our perfection, which is why it is so big of a deal that the laws demand for perfection is off of us. Now I'm married to another. Now I'm united to another. Now Jesus is my perfection. Now Jesus is my punishment. Jesus is my all in all. To live is Christ and to die is gain. So we've made it to the end. Now we're about to sing a song that points to the very essence of Paul's message here. This message should make us worship. Even as I sat down to write this sermon, I had such a hard time. Oh, simply because I had a difficult time trying to focus on, on all the thoughts and what God has done for me, what Christ has done for me, what, I've, what I was before when I was united to him all the things I used to seek versus the things that I seek now, it was all coming to me at once. And I just wanted to grab my guitar and worship. A few folks asked me this week, Perry, what are you preaching on? And my response was, you know what we're going to do? We're going to read verses one through six and we're just going to (laughs) sing. Right? And that would be sufficient. We're going to worship. It's that good. So this song has a bridge in it, and it's a song that we sing often. But just look at the lyrics as I read it. What once was dead is now alive. You gave to me the breath of life. You brought me up out from the grave. I'm bursting out with songs of praise. Our God is good, is he not? Church, let's remember what Paul has shown us and worship. Just as death dissolves legal obligation to one spouse in marriage, the law is dissolved when the Christian dies with Christ. Because we have a new union with Christ, the Holy Spirit, it gives us a new status, a new power, and a new security to serve God's kingdom. Let's pray, church. Church, we thank you for today, Lord. We thank you for this word. We thank you for this text. We thank you for this message. We thank you for the law. Lord, if it was not for the law, we would never see our need for Christ. Thank you for showing us something that we would have never seen before. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for accomplishing everything that needed to be accomplished in order for us to have salvation. What a wonderful gift. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for us. Because of that, You now don't look at our sin. When you see us, you don't see this sin bearer. You see your son. We thank you for that. We thank you that our hearts can be assumed with the thankfulness. Let our hearts continue to be full of just generosity and gratefulness towards what you have done, what you have accomplished. And let the Holy Spirit dwell in us richly. Let the Holy Spirit dwell in us deeply, Lord. Let that make us serve your church, serve your people. We want to care for one another. We want to serve one another out of thankfulness for what you have done. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for what you continue to do each and every single day of our lives. And of course, let us glorify you and enjoy you forever. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.